All right, Soul Company, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. How are we feeling tonight? Shoot. How are we feeling tonight, Soul Company? Uh, that, that feels good. That feels good. That feels like you guys are ready, excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. If you guys are new, my name is Colin, and I have the, the privilege of working on staff here at Soul Company. Tonight, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible, turn there. It's getting kind of a weird place, so check the table of contents. Uh, but here's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel, is that really there are a lot of stories, kind of crazy stories in the book of Daniel that have really similar themes. And so what we're going to continue to see tonight is that Babylon, the, the place where this book takes, takes place, is a really tough place to live. We're also going to see that King Nebuchadnezzar, the, the ruling king of Babylon, is crazy. He's got highs, lows, He's cool for a second, like about a verse in your Bible, and then he goes back crazy, and it's just on repeat. Uh, the men of Judah are tested, so we saw Daniel and his friends tested last week. We're going to see his friends tested this week. We're going to see that faithfulness wins in the end, and in all the messages of Daniel, we're going to see, uh, we're going to try to give you like a, a little something that you can you can think about, you can go home thinking about. And so, so tonight, I'm hoping to give you something to grab onto, give you something to, that, that you can process. And, and I'm so excited for next week, guys. I, uh, I was at this conference this last weekend. Mark was there. And I got like 10 minutes of a conversation with Mark. And in 10 minutes, Mark blew my mind. He's one of the best Bible teachers I know. And so, Come next week, invite your friends. Uh, Mark is going to kill it next week. But tonight we're going to be in Daniel 3. And Daniel 3 is, is this story that if you grew up around the church, you might know. But if you didn't, that's, a, that's okay. We're going we're gonna to walk through the story step by step tonight. But even if you grew up in the church, like even if you know exactly what's coming tonight, what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to, to maybe stop in some places in the text tonight, pull over, so to speak, and give you something to think about, and maybe give you something to think about in a new way, something you haven't thought about before. And so we're going to jump in and, and see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three friends of Daniel. We're going to see them walk in a story about idolatry. And so here's where we're going tonight, a little roadmap for you. This is, this is where we're going if you're taking notes. We're going to start with the problem of idolatry. What, what's wrong with idolatry? Then we're going to move to what marks true worship. If, if idolatry is false worship, we're going to move into what is the marker of true worship. And then we'll, we'll wrap up tonight with, with some application of how to be true worshipers of the one true God. So we're going to jump right into the story tonight. Here's what's happening is King Nebuchadnezzar, I might call him King Neb tonight because we don't have all night and his name takes forever to say. 
uh, so, so bear with me. Uh, he's an egomaniac. He, uh, he's evil. He's crazy. He's okay, like I said earlier, and then, then it repeats. And so the cycle is just going to continue tonight. But what we have to know is that throughout this cycle, even when he's cool, even when he's like doing okay things for the Jewish people, he's still all about himself. He's self-centered. He's entitled. He wants it to be about him. And this is epitomized in Daniel 3 because he builds a golden statue. And that's like weird and abstract to us. But what we can see in the text is that this golden statue is a statue symbolizing the, the reign of the Babylonian Empire. Like, it, it's built in, in the, the town square, probably, where everyone can, can see it, and more specifically, it's built to, to represent King Nebuchadnezzar. That, man, this place is about me. This kingdom is about me. It's about what I do and how I am good for you. It's not just about him being a good king to people. It's about him being a God to people. And so if that's what King Nebuchadnezzar thinks, and he's an evil psychomaniac, what, what naturally does he do? He requires everyone in Babylon to bow and, and worship this statue. Because if they're worshiping this statue, they're worshiping him as God. And if you didn't need any more evidence to believe that this guy has lost his marbles, uh, if you don't bow and worship this statue, he will burn you alive. That's what, that's what it says. And so this puts these three Jewish men in a really tough spot. Like, do they bow to this statue representing King Nebuchadnezzar as their God, or do they hold to, to their belief that Yahweh, the, the God of the Bible, is the true God and will only bow to worship him? When we reference back to last week, if you were here, if not, that's okay. They had made a resolve or a promise in quiet places, like a, a promise behind closed doors, that they would not worship any other gods. And so this puts them in a really tough spot. Let's see what happens. This is Daniel 3, starting in verse 8. This is what it says. Therefore, at that time... Certain Chaldeans, that's like native Babylonian people, came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. Worship you as God. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the providence of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So what's happening? These Chaldean men are getting a little jealous, right? Because these Jewish men are, are getting promoted. They're getting the attention. The, the, king's, the king's like honoring them because they're doing great work. They're, they're great men of the king's service. 
So when they see that they dishonor the king, they pounce on the opportunity to tattletale. They say like, yo, these guys who you love so much, you actually shouldn't love them that much. Like, it, it remi- like they're looking for, for ways to call them out. It, it reminds me of on Saturday, our guy Austin Miller got married. Come on, give it up for him even though he's not here. And here's why I was reminded of this, because uh, he told our staff team, he was like, yo, guys, if, I mean, if you know Austin, this will make sense. He's like, when the DJ starts to play the music, I need everyone on the dance floor. Like, and I need you to, like, start sweating. I need you to, like, bust it on the dance floor, right? So DJ starts, you know, playing music. And you can kind of you can kind of tell, like, I know Austin's eyes are going to lock eyes with me. And so right when the right, right after Austin stopped dancing with his mom, DJ turns up the music. I am, like, the first one on the dance floor because I'm trying to – I'm not trying to get chewed out by Austin on his wedding day, right? So – it, it, it's kind of this, the same thing, right? Like music starts playing, everyone bow, like everyone's, everyone's instantly bowing before the king, but these Jewish men don't move. They, they, they don't bow. There, there's trouble in Babylon. And so what ends up happening is King Nebuchadnezzar gives them another chance. He's like, hey, I get it. Like, the, the city center is, is a pretty prominent place to bow down and, and worship this golden image. And so I'll give you the chance to do it in private. Or maybe you won't embarrass yourself. Maybe, maybe you, like, won't lose your reputation as bad. And so if you won't do it publicly, you'll do it privately. So, again, King Neb, he, he hires the DJ, right? Right. He brings in the, the musicians. The mu- music starts to play. It's like, okay, it's time for you to bow. And these men don't move. They stand straight up, refusing to bow to a different king. Refusing to acknowledge that King Nebuchadnezzar is a god to them. And the consequence is that they're burned alive. Like, that's what's happening in this story. It's a real story about men that are burned alive for their refusal in private to acknowledge a different God. So, so I want to I stop for just a second. Because I, I've been studying the Bible for, for a long time now, and what I can catch myself doing when I'm reading a story like this is I can actually write myself into the story, but in a wrong way. Like, I can write myself into the story and say, man, I think I would be like these three Jewish men and would refuse to bow before any other God, even if it cost me my life, even if it meant I was going to be burned alive. But, but if I take a second and I'm honest with myself, I'm not actually sure that's the right place to write my name into the story. I think probably more often than not, I'm like the Chaldean men who are the tattletale, right? Because I, 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 I'm, like, not trying to stir anything up. I'm, like, quick to worship other things. And at the very least, even if I'm not the Chaldean men, even if I'm not the tattletales, I'm probably one of the unnamed Babylonian people in the crowd, one of the people not mentioned in the story. Because what, what happens is there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of people bowing before this golden statue, but they're probably all bowing for different reasons. Like some people are bowing 
because they actually think this golden statue is worth worshiping. Others are bowing because they fear the fire. Others are bowing because they're just trying to fit in. They're just trying to be like one of the other people. But there are so many people bowing. And I think more often than not, that's where I find myself in the story. Not as the hero of the story, but as as the one who has wronged God. Now, I have no doubt that there are really anyone in this room, including myself, that would be tempted to worship a, a golden statue today. But, but I don't actually think this text is exclusively talking about statue worship. I actually think it's talking about idol worship. Because statue worship is almost irrelevant to us today, but idol worship is pervasive. It's everywhere. It's everywhere out there. It's everywhere in here, and it's everywhere in my heart. And so this is what idol worship is. It's the elevation of any person, idea, or thing to the place of God in our hearts and minds. Or more simply, it's anything we love in place of God. Idol worship is anything we love in place of God. See, statue worship isn't a problem in my heart, but idol worship is. It's people or possessions or pride that I can find myself believing can be a God in my life. I don't have a problem with statues, but I have a problem with some of these other things. And no, I don't like physically bow before them. But I do find myself misaligning things in my heart. Finding things being my my primary ambition. Finding things that I care deeply about, even good things. But good things that take the place of God in my heart a place that they have no right to be in. And so when you think about idol worship, I, I think it's like sometimes when, when we think about something like this, what we, what we think about is we're like, man, it's kind of like breakfast for dinner. It's just like in the wrong place, but it's okay. Or at least maybe that's how we treat it sometimes. Like, man, I know it shouldn't be in that place, but, but, it, but it's okay. I just need to, like, switch it around a little bit. But what idol worship is like is it's more like eating the carton instead of eating the eggs. Like, it just has no business in our life. It's, like, crazy. It's insane. It's baffling that any of us would do it, and yet we all do it. Let me, let me go on and explain this a little more. So how do you know that there's idol worship in your life? Here are some questions I want to ask you, then I'll, I'll, I'll walk through them that maybe tell you there's idol worship in your life. First of all, what are you pursuing as your primary ambition? Like when I ask you, why do you do the things you do? What is the most primary reason you give for why you live the way you live? What's your primary ambition? Second question, what causes heightened emotions? What makes you lash out? What makes you act emotional, what, what causes you to feel high highs and low lows. Third question, where are you tempted to compromise your integrity? 
an idol, like in this passage in Daniel 3, can often call us to compromise our integrity. These are some of the evidences that you maybe have an idol in your life. And so I just want to really quickly, I actually just want to like l- give you guys a door into my life. Where like when I was, uh, when I was looking at this text, when I was praying through this text, when I was writing this text, these are the ways that God undid my heart. Like, hey, Colin, maybe you've misaligned some things in your life. So these are some of the the ways that I see idolatry in my life, and maybe some of these will relate to you, maybe maybe not, but I put, put them into kind of three categories, people, possessions, and pride. First one, people. I look at people in the position that I want or, or the, the place that I want to be, and I want to be more like them and more associated with them. So real life, I just told you I was at a conference this last weekend with Mark Vance, and I, man, I like am in a room with Mark Vance, and I'm just like, man, if I could be a little bit more like Mark Vance, then maybe I'd, like, maybe I'd be someone. Man, if I could get, like, people like that to, to be associated with me. So for you, are you running after the approval of someone? Like, is the approval of someone your primary ambition? Or maybe I, this caused me to, like, think back to my life before uh, a couple years ago where I was looking for a person to define my worth and identity. So I was looking to a girlfriend or maybe even a prospective girlfriend. So for you, maybe it's a girlfriend or maybe it's a boyfriend or a prospective girlfriend or boyfriend or maybe it's your parents or your friends. You're looking to people to define your worth and in running towards those relationships, are you willing to compromise your integrity to get them? Is there idol worship in people? So next category is possessions. This is maybe the one that's most clear to us in our minds, which is to say, if I just had blank, I'd be happier. So some of the ones that come up for me sometimes, like I'm driving my car. I have a wheel that squeaks every once in a while. It's fine. It's not a big deal. But I'm like, man, if I just had a nicer car, I'd be okay. If I had another zero in my bank account, maybe I'd be a little happier. It, if I could go on a cool adventure, like leave work for a couple months and, and travel, like that would be the good life or some sort of like cool toy, like a boat or ATV, you know, something cool. Uh, like I'd, I, then I'd be happier. The, so for you, are you pursuing things in a way of like, man, that's the thing I need to gain. Like, is it your primary ambition to have that? More money, to, to own some possession, to have some number of zeros in your bank account? Or are you looking at someone who has that thing and saying, man, they, their life is better. Like, they own that, so their life is better. They can afford that, their life is better. Or maybe sometimes... It's not idolatry over something I don't have, but it's actually idolatry over something that I already have. Right? So this is one I was convicted of the other day, which is like, man, I want my money to be about me. Like, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to even give it away to, like, good things. Like, I had to fix my heating (laughs) a couple weeks ago, and it just, like, hurts. 
I had to write the check. Like, I literally just had to write the check. And it, like, hurt. Why? Because I, I, like, I, like, idolize money sometimes in my life. Like, I want that in my life. And so for you, do you have heightened emotions when you lose something? You have heightened emotions when you lose something. Maybe, maybe if you do, there's an idol in your life. There's something in your heart that you're putting in the place of God. Okay, last one, pride. This one's sneaky, but I think it's the easiest to slip into. Here's another way to say idolizing pride. I think it's like idolizing an idea. Idolizing an idea, and so there are so many of these, so I'm just going to like fly through them pretty quickly. What ideas are you idolizing? Are you idolizing the idea of like wanting to travel the world and own, own a house and never needing to budget or ever worry about money? It's, it's like the idea of like being adventurous. Are you wanting to be viewed a certain way or have certain people say something about you? You're idolizing like this idea of being someone. Cool, popular, friendly, are you idolizing this idea? Are, are you wanting, are you idolizing the idea of like wanting to be viewed, whether by your peers or by your professors, as like the perfect student getting great grades? Man, I'm idolizing this idea. Are you wanting to have a perfectly curated bucket list and then strategically check off the boxes? Man, how cool would it be to like be this type of person? Or even, this is where it gets like, this is where it gets tricky. We can idolize good things. We can idolize being seen as the type of person that reads their Bible all the time. We can idolize being known as the person that's most committed to Saul's company. We can idolize the thought of like being godly. Like it's not actually about being godly. It's about being known as being godly. You know what I'm saying? Like there are good things. Like, some of these are good things, but even good things, when they take the place of God, radically distort our lives. They radically distort our lives, and it hurts us. Here's what I'm saying is that people are good gifts of God's grace, but everyone will let you down. Possessions are entrusted to us by God. They're good but they can be taken away. And ideas. Ideas are great things to run after. I think a lot of times ideas are even given to us by God, but if that's the thing we're looking to satisfy our lives, we will never be satisfied. Idols. They're deceiving. We run after them, and we want them to be something for us that only God can be. And that is something that the Jewish men in this story believed. They didn't view King Neb as bad, but they knew they could not view him as God. So King Nebuchadnezzar gets pretty pissed. It says this in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was charged against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Okay, first off, he's just like not that smart. I mean, seriously, like if, if he was really trying to torture these guys, he wouldn't turn up the temperature, he'd turn down the temperature. You know what I'm saying? Like crock pot, slow cook, low and slow, you know what I'm saying? Like, just like not the brightest bulb on the tree. 
Like this thing gets so hot. The guys that are throwing them into the furnace get burned alive. That's what happened. Like this, it is so hot. The door gets opened and the guys that are standing in front of the door get singed, like dead, evaporate. But these men, these Jewish men don't turn back. Why? Because they knew something that was true about worship. Look back a couple verses to their answer before King Nebuchadnezzar. This is what verse 16 says. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That, that they're refusing to worship him. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. I love verse 18. One of the best verses in the Bible. This is what it says. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not. You, you see, they knew something of, about true worship. King Nebuchadnezzar got so mad because their worship was so deeply rooted in something else that was not him. Their worship was rooted deeply in a God who is able to deliver them from the fire. But what I want you to notice, that's why I pointed it out in verse 18, their worship was not dependent on God delivering them from the fire. They worshiped one who is able, but they did not depend. Their worship was not dependent on his deliverance. Here's what they're saying. They're saying God is going to get glory in this situation no matter what. He's going to provide for us, and we're going to walk out of this furnace alive, untouched by the flames, because he can do that. And if that happens, he is going to get glory. But if not, if we die, we will die bowing to a king who's worthy of our worship, and that will bring him glory too. We're in a a win-win situation because God is going to get the glory. The, the worship of the Jewish men was not dependent on what God did, but who God was. They didn't say, we'll, we'll worship God because of what he will do for us. They said, we will worship God because touched or not, he touched or not by the flames, he is worthy of it. And so my question for you, is that how you worship God? Do you worship God like that? Do you worship God because of who he is or because of what he does for you or maybe what he will give to you? I think, uh, man, this is, this is key. The, the, this idea changed my life a, a, a while ago when I, when I learned it for the first time. It's this. It's that our expectations of God actually can rob us of our worship of him. You see, we, we can expect him to be someone or to do something for us. And so your worship of him can become dependent on that thing. And may, maybe he can do it. And, and likely, all, like in all scenarios, he likely can do it. But there's a lesson to be learned from the Jewish men. It's this. They expected God to move. Yes, they expected God to move, but they were not certain how God was going to move. 
You said they, they, they were like worshiping God and they're saying, God, we expect you to move. We expect you to get glory. We expect you to do something amazing with our lives. We're just not sure how you're going to do it. We're not sure how, but we know that you're going to. Like for me, one, one of the ways that I learned this, I, I had like started to learn it. And one of the ways that I really like, man, man, God just like ingrained this belief so deeply in me as I was uh, my senior year of college, I was uh, just like wrestling with this thought of like, man, I love the Bible. I love teaching the Bible. I love telling people about Jesus. I think I maybe want to like do ministry. And so I didn't know really how it was going to work out, how it was going to shake out for me, but believed that God was going to get glorified in my life after graduation. Like, man, I, I got to the point where I was like, I, I, I was okay with not doing ministry. I was like applying for other jobs, uh, didn't have a degree in, in ministry, was like applying for the, these business jobs. And here was the thought that I had. It was, it was this, it was that, God, you are going to use me to bring the gospel to places. I just don't know where yet. I'm expecting you to move through my life. I just don't know the place that you're going to have me yet. That's where he taught it to me, that, it, that it's expecting God to move, but it's not knowing how he's going to move. Which all of a sudden brings us back to this idea of idol worship as being all the more crazy. It's crazy because no matter how great someone or something is, it pales in comparison to the greatness of God. Simply who he is. All those things, people, ideas, possessions are all small creations of the ultimate creator. How crazy is that? That like me, I'm not, I'm not just talking about you guys, like I settle to worship the creation rather than the creator. Like, God, because he's the creator, because he's all-powerful, because of who he is, like, because of what's built in his DNA, he is worthy of our worship. Like, he just is worthy, period. It's not what he does. He is just worthy. He is high above us. He is holy. He is different. He is perfect. And yet, that worthy God meets these men in the fire, and he meets us in the fire too. This is what verse 24 says. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. They're in the fire at this point. And he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound. Walking in the midst of the fire, they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. All right, theologians have argued as to what King Neb sees. Maybe it's an angel, maybe it's an, a pre-incarnate son of God. But what we, we don't know what exactly he sees. But what we do know is that God met these three men in the fire. And if he meets them in the fire, he'll meet you in the fire too. Not always in the way we expect. Not always in the way that we want. But always, always in the way we need, God will meet us in the fire. And so 
Here's what I want you to know tonight is that in the cancer diagnosis of a family member, when it feels like the flames are getting turned up, God will meet you in the fire. In the lonely nights, God will meet you there. In the hurt of another person has done to you, God will meet you there. In the shame of running back to sin, God will meet you there. In the anxiety of school, God will meet you there. In the week, in the in the wake of deep pain that no one else can understand, God will meet you there. Because God meets us in the fire. God, the Holy One, the all-powerful One, the all-present One, the only God worthy of our worship, that God moves into the fires of our lives, into the places where it's hard, in in the times where we're tested, in the relationships that are broken, in the days that are dark. God meets us in those places. It is so hard to like understand how crazy of an idea this is. This is like the best thing I could come up with. It's like I was an entrepreneurship major, uh, so I, business students, shout out uh, Carlson, come on. Um, okay, got some booze. Also got like the loudest clap I've gotten all night. So you know, let's. Uh, anyway. Uh, Guys, this is for all you entrepreneurship majors, but really everyone. Guys, this is Elon Musk coming to your entrepreneurship class. He doesn't just come and teach your entrepreneurship class. He partners with you. And you're not the brightest student in the class that he thinks has potential. You're the failing student that is in desperate need of help. It's Elon Musk partnering with you in that place. And I think we understand, or at least can kind of conceptualize the gravity of just how far Elon Musk would have to go and humble himself to meet us in a place like that, and yet God has gone all the further to meet you in the fire. God is all, like, so much higher than Elon Musk. You are, there is so much more of a gap between you and God than between the the worst student in an entrepreneurship class and Elon Musk. It's crazy to think that God would become knowable, and not only knowable, but come near us, even in the fire. And this is displayed most prominently in the person of Jesus. You see, this story is actually an inverted story of the story of the universe. You see, in this story, if you don't worship the idol, you get death. But in the story of the universe, if you worship idols, you deserve death. Is that you and I deserve to walk through the fire. Here's what we deserve. We deserve to walk through the fire, but with no one to help us. Not with anyone to rescue us from the flames, but for the flames to engulf us. But the worthy God, the holy God, left heaven in the person of Jesus to walk through the fire that you deserve. He did it by going to a cross, died in your place. He died for idol worshipers like you and like me, people who put other things, things he created in his place. And he died, and then he rose from the grave to prove that idol worshipers are welcomed in too, to prove that you now don't have to walk through the fire alone. To prove that the worthy God would come near to us, those who are unworthy. 
And so here's how the story ends. Three Jewish men walk out of the fire untouched. Because they walk through the fire with God, this is what the crazy king says. He says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, set aside the king's commands. Like he's saying, do away with what I said earlier, because this God delivered them. But here's what's something King Neb never understood, that you don't need to be delivered from the fire to feel freedom. You don't need to be delivered from the fire to feel freedom because of who God is and what Jesus has done for you. You can experience freedom in the midst of the fire. So really quickly, here's how we're going to end. We're going to go three ways you experience freedom in the midst of the fire. Number one, community. Guys, find people who will walk through the fire with you. Find people who will walk through the fire with you. So what that means, some of you need to join a campus group. Some of you are like, man, I'm struggling to find people to walk through the fire with. Join a campus group. Others of you, you're like, man, I'm in a campus group, but I don't feel like I have anyone to walk through the fire with. Here would be my question for you. Is there's a difference between knowing Christians and being known by Christians? Like, is there something you need to share in campus group? Is there a weakness you need to open up about, a sin you need to confess, brokenness that you need to bring to the light? Like, letting people in is scary, it's crazy, it takes courage, but it's less risky than walking through the fire alone. Guys, second one, second way to experience freedom in the fire is conviction. Here's the reality of the Jewish men. I, I doubt they decided in the moment that, that they were not going to bow. I, I think probably what had happened is they had talked before together, friendship, community, and they had said, we are going to refuse to bow. We are going to set our feet down on our convictions. They encouraged each other to hold to the decisions that they had made earlier. Here's what I'll say, guys. You have to make decisions about your life, what direction you're going to pursue. And the only direction worth pursuing is God himself. But I think a lot of times we don't want to make decisions. We just want to drift through life. Here's what I'll say. We never drift in a direction worth going. If you drift, you will not end up in a place you want to be. Here's third and most important one. Is that they believed the promises of God in his word. Here's what I bet. I bet their, their morning time on this crazy day was in Isaiah 43. This is what it says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overcome you or overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. You see, they knew the promises of God. It was ingrained into their brain that God would deliver them. No, maybe not on the other side of the fire, but ultimately, even if they died, God would deliver them because their belief in a true king was so deeply rooted and so I'm, I'm running a little long on time, but, but I'm going to do this anyways. Okay, uh, band, you guys can, you guys can come up because uh, 
Yeah, you guys can work your way up. But here's, here's how we're going to end. I just want to walk through just promises of God that as I was studying were like mega encouraging to me. This is what it says. John 16, he has overcome the world. Romans 8, he has removed condemnation. Matthew 11, he will give rest to the weary. Guys, these are promises you can fall back on. Exodus 14, he will fight for you. 2 Corinthians 12, his power is made perfect in weakness. I needed that one today. Isaiah 54, through storms, he will not remove his love. Philippians 4, he will give peace to the anxious. Exodus 34, he will be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 1 Peter 2, his wounds heal our sin. 2 Chronicles 7, he hears the cries of his people. James 1, he will produce endurance through trials. Even when you're walking through the fires of life, he's producing something good in you. Psalm 27, he will be your light. Romans 8, he will work all things for the good of those who love him. Isaiah 40, he gives power to the weak. Romans 5, he gives he has given peace to those who he justified. Psalm 34, he hears you and he delivers you. John 19, he has paid your sins. Psalm 86, he is forgiving and good. It's part of who he is. John 3, he loves you. Psalm 9, he is a refuge for the oppressed. John 8, he has indeed set you free. Amen? Come on. Proverbs 3, he will make your path straight. Philippians 4, he will meet all your needs. Psalm 23, he will comfort you through the darkest valleys of your life. Revelation 20, he will destroy all evil. Deuteronomy 31, he will not leave you or forsake you. Revelation 21, he will restore all things. Guys, those are promises you can look back on in God's word and say, God will walk with me through the fire. So we can worship a God like that, but really quickly, I just want to pray for us. God, saturate our minds with those truths so deeply ingrained in us that we need to be the people that know and believe you will deliver us, that know and believe you're producing something good in us even though we're in the fire, that know and believe you have forgiven us and removed condemnation from us. God, help us to worship you in light of that. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.